difficult names. Like, always be the first one to say difficult Bible names. And once you say it, then that's what it is for that day. So, maybe you know, I'm not going to reread most of the genealogy for that reason. No. Today I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited most every Sunday. Today I'm excited because we kick off our new theme for the year. And our theme for the year, as you can see in this graphic, designed by Summer Shore, just by the way, uh, is King Jesus. We're going to spend this next year preaching through the book of Matthew. And it's not just going to be, here's today's text, here's what it says, and go. there are some definite uh, themes that are going to come out. There's some definite uh, angles of which we want to address, but we're quite literally going to start today in Matthew 1.1, and at the end of the year we're going to end up somewhere in Matthew 28, obviously. So, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do this year, uh, just as we read through and, and, and study Matthew together. One, I do challenge you, and I've talked about this before, I do challenge you, I know it's hard, I know it's not something we tend to do a lot, but I do challenge you, each and every one of you this year, to sit down and actually read Matthew I would say cover to cover, but it's, you know, page to page. Sit down and read Matthew chapter 1 through Matthew 28 in one sitting. I don't know how many of you have ever done that with the Bible book. Uh, Matthew is definitely easier than others, say Jeremiah or Isaiah. But I do challenge you to read through at least one time this year. And, and don't just sit down and go, yeah, I said, he said, oh, I should better do this. Sit down and pray about, God, help me experience the narrative of this book. Help me to see how it would have been read and would have been experienced. Help me, to, help me to see how it was written all those many years ago. Help me to get caught up in the story and the doctrine and, and everything. I challenge you this year, and, and I invite you to let me know, not because, you know, it's a contest or anything, but let me know what you think about that experience if you haven't already. Second of all, uh, I'll be this week posting, actually, hopefully this uh, whatever is coming up. And so you'll always know what's coming up as far as the readings, as far as the text. I do invite you through the week to read ahead and pray about whatever the sermon text is going to be. Read it beforehand. Do your own study and see what I miss for that matter. And I just pray this will be a good uh, study for us all. King Jesus. I choose that wording on purpose for several reasons. One, because we tend not to use that language, and it has a very particular connotation. And it's a connotation that is actually better suited for how Matthew presents who Jesus is, except for the fact that we really don't know what it means, but it matters a great deal. To go into this, we don't really understand the concept of kings. We understand the historical parts of them. We understand that, like England and Britain, if anyone's watching from there, has a monarchy. For many Americans, we don't really understand how that works. Um, and we really don't understand what it means to have a king over us. We don't really understand what it means to have someone of absolute power, of absolute authority, by virtue of simply being born. There's really nothing, regardless of what you want to say, there's really nothing in America that has absolute power and authority over us. Much as we might want to think or hope or worry in politics or Ryan just thought I was going to make a joke about police, but yep, there he is. <laughs> nothing really has authority over us. True authority, absolute authority, like a king would have. What are the markers of a king? 
Well, someone who was born into a royal family, someone who by virtue believed throughout history, by virtue of being placed in this time, in this spot, has absolute authority over everything, over his realm, over his reign, over his people. If the king said, do this, you didn't say, but you went, yes. Otherwise, oftentimes you would die throughout history. There was no arguing there was no debating. There were no, but my rights as a citizen of this country. No, your rights began and ended with the king. We really don't understand that in America. And even if we understand it, we don't know what it really means to live under a king. And so whenever we say the term King Jesus, we have an idea of what that means. We have an idea. We don't really understand it. I want to actually go back a year ago, January 5th, 2020. I want to actually go back a year ago and review a couple of things I preached a whole year ago. Yes, I remembered. Maybe you did too. When we look at kingdom in the Bible, there's a couple ways that it shows up. And actually beginning uh, for that series, I went through every aspect, every uh, mention of the word kingdom in the Bible, Old and New Testament. It took a while, but it was actually really informative. There were two words, uh, mamlaka and basileia, in the Hebrew and in the Greek. Both of them mean fairly the same thing. Kingship, sovereignty, dominion, or reign. In the Old Testament, it's used a couple of times. It's never, ever, ever in the Old Testament, as far as I could tell, as far as many scholars I respect could tell, tied to salvation or redemption outside of the Psalms. And in the Psalms, God's kingdom is ruling all over. It's all-encompassing. Uh, people are drawn to the Mount of Zion. God's kingdom, meaning his rule, is all-encompassing. And the Psalms, obviously, as you know, are people in lament or people in hope, people trying to say, this is how it should be. God, if you're God, this is, this is what you should be. This is what it should be in the world. So they're very poetic and very um, visionary. Josephus, even in early Jewish writings, uses the word mamlaka over 400 times and it's all about nations and kings what i want to point out to you is that while kingdom is prevalent in the old testament it's almost always used about people and places a realm and the king almost never tied to salvation or redemption in the new testament however as you may see as you may uh, gather it's used 160 plus times, mainly in the Gospels, and its connotation changes. It's not necessarily different, but because of who the king is, and why the king is, and what his kingdom is about, the meaning changes. We looked at last year to begin the year with five uh, characteristics of God's kingdom. I just want to review two out of the essential five elements of the kingdom. Obviously, to have a kingdom, whatever sort of kingdom it is, you have to have a king. This is first and foremost. In 1 Samuel 8, God says I will, to, to David, I will make you a kingdom without hands. But in the, Old, in the New Testament, we see that Jesus, in John 18, answering Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. In the Old Testament, God was the king of all things in the New Testament, in John, in the Gospels, and in Paul's writings, kingship, the leader of this earthly kingdom, the leader of the group of people, the realm of earth, shifts 
explicitly to Jesus himself. The second out of five essential qualities is that there obviously must be a rule of that king. And not necessarily law, this is not what I mean, but the king must rule. There must be an authority. There must be a reign that the king does. Now, why this matters is because in Exodus, as you may remember, God constantly reminds his people that I am doing this, I am overseeing you, I am leading you because I have redeemed you. And so even while the word kingdom in the Old Testament is not used explicitly about salvation or redemption, God as a king and his rule is always from the beginning connected to redemption. Because he constantly reminds his people, coming them out of slavery, bringing them out of slavery, bringing them out of Egypt, because I have redeemed you, do this. Because I have redeemed you, do this. Because you are my people whom I have redeemed, do this. God's character as a king in the Old Testament is connected to redemption. So therefore, the question is, which we will attempt to answer in this sermon at least a little bit, out of, believe it or not, the genealogy in Matthew 1 through 7, uh, Matthew 1, 1 through 17, is this question. What kind of king is King Jesus? Because if there must be a king in the kingdom, and the kingdom's, uh, the king's rule is integral, what kind of king is King Jesus? That matters. We'll go into that in just a little bit. It matters what kind of king. It matters what kind of king is in charge of what kind of kingdom. Surprisingly, I want to offer you five things to start out today, to start out this year, about what kind of king Jesus is, and we can find them all from the genealogy of Matthew. I do invite you to have your Bibles open, uh, whether in physical or digital form, as I don't have a lot of scripture uh, necessarily up here. I'll refer to different things. I'm not going to necessarily go through it um, and exegete like I normally do because it's well, it's fairly self-explanatory. There are generations, and that's history. But I will refer back to several things. What kind of king is King Jesus? I want to offer you five ways, five descriptions of what kind of king King Jesus is. Number one, Jesus is a historic king. Now, offhand, that may not be the most, uh, wow, history! But it matters a great deal. Genealogies inherently are not just <laughs> boring things which we have to read sometimes in Scripture because the teacher makes us or things that we can skip in our Bibles. I know there are some people out there who really enjoy genealogies. Jennifer, I'm talking to you. Not everyone's like that. In fact, a lot of people's uh, yearly Bible readings, and I speak from experience, tend to fall off right about Leviticus 4, once you get really into the details of sacrifices, or in Numbers, whenever the first ten chapters of Numbers are genealogies. And you're like, <laughs> Why does it matter that Jesus is a historic king? Well, because it shows, like a genealogies always do, that this didn't just come out of thin air, that it wasn't just a happenstance like, hey, this guy's king, he looks good, or he's a character, he has a good characteristic, or, or hey, we need a king, so let's do this guy. Jesus has a history and a lineage and a, and a 
and a foundation for why he is king. If you notice in Matthew, and this has been talked about quite a bit, <coughs> excuse me, that Matthew groups his genealogy in three groups of 14 generations. Well, there were actually more generations than that in between Jesus and the beginning of the genealogy. Why does Matthew do this? Well, he wants to make several points even by this grouping. And here's where English translations and being 21st century Americans tend to be at a disadvantage. We don't pick these clues up like a Jew would, and Matthew was explicitly written to Jews. Why three groups of 14 generations? Well, King David was the ultimate king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. He was the one to um, be, people thought at the time, maybe the Messiah, but he's the one that all kings were compared to. In Hebrew, there are no vowels, and so if you take the consonants of David's name, which is D-V-D, whoop, go, please, D, uh, D-V-D, this is Jewish numerology, actually. A lot of people think Jewish numerology is about secret signs and, and hidden messages. No, it's just word plays based on things that any Jew would know. There are numbers assigned to each consonant, and DVD is 4 plus 6 plus 4, which equals 14. This may seem a little bit odd to us, but we have demonic devices like this that if we know about them, we go, oh, I see what you're doing. To a Jew, this would be plan as day. <clears throat> Three groups of 14 generations. Every time the word 14 happens, and he starts out even by saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, right away to a Jew that would say, oh, look what I'm about to do. It's almost like a little wink, wink. And a Jew would read down 14 generations, 14, 14. Ah, Matthew is hyperlinking right back to David. Why does that matter? Well, because he's saying that Jesus as the foundation of David himself in order to proclaim himself Messiah, to proclaim himself king. But it's not just that. Out of curiosity, and the ESV ruins it a little bit, um, does anyone in verses 7, 8, and 10 have another name other than Asa and Ammon? Anyone else? Anyone have a different name other than Asa and Ammon? Probably not. Right away what Matthew does is that he goes back through, obviously, and he uh, picks and chooses because he wants to get 14. He picks and chooses what generations he wants to mention. And he does this very much on purpose. If you were to go back and look at the historical genealogies, Asa and Edmund, would show up. Except that's not what Matthew wrote. Matthew actually wrote, and the ESV actually gets it, although the footnote messes it up. The ESV says, <clears throat> in verse 7, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. We'll jump down to verse 10. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. Not Ammon. Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. Matthew actually wrote Asaph and Amos instead of the correct, quote-unquote, the correct genealogy. Why is he doing that? Well, to us, it looks like Matthew's messing with history. And in fact, many modern translations 
have corrected this by putting in the correct people. And actually, even at the bottom of, uh, in my footnote, it says Asaph is probably an alternate spelling of Asa. Some manuscript Asa, also verse 8, Amos is probably an alternate spelling of Amon. So they're trying to correct it, saying, well, maybe it's a historical thing. People in recent years who have studied Jewish literature and Jewish poetry have realized that what Matthew was doing by virtue of connecting to the history of the Bible, the history of this genealogy, is that Matthew's putting in another wink-wink, if you will. What is Asaph? Asaph is connected intrinsically to the Psalms, and Amos, obviously, one of the prophets. What is Matthew doing here, even by saying just what we might say, messing with some of the history a little bit? Well, continue on just for a second here. It gets better or worse, depending on your opinion. In verse 2, he begins the genealogy with Jacob. Very intentional phrase. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. What is Jacob? Who is Jacob? What is Judah? Well, Jacob is Israel, the beginning of the nation of Israel. How does he end the genealogy? Also again, with another particular phrase. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. What he's doing here is putting the beginning of history, of Israeli history, because Jacob and Joseph are not just genealogically the generations in front of Jesus, but obviously Jacob and Joseph have a particular history in Jewish history. Joseph particularly, he's a dreamer. We might know that uh, to be the case from the biblical Jesus story as well, that Joseph had dreams. What, what am I saying here in a sense? This, this is a little bit far-fetched for us, but this is would be obvious to a Jew. What am I saying? I'm saying that right in the very beginning of this genealogy, I mean literally right from the very beginning, the son of David, 14, 14, 14, Joseph and Judah and Jacob, right away you have very obvious, like I said, if you were a Jew, references to the Torah, to the prophets, and to the Psalms. Why does this matter? This was how the law and the prophets and the Psalms was how the Old Testament was referred to as a whole collection. In fact, Jesus himself refers back to it in Luke 24, 24 44 through 48 when he says, in essence, do you not know that the entire law, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, all of it was about me from the very beginning, the very first verse, Matthew is hyperlinking the fact that this Jesus whom this genealogy is about this Jesus, whom this genealogy is explaining, this is the fulfillment. He is linking Jesus, whom he's going to talk about for the next 28 chapters, all the way back to everything that came before. And if you were a Jew especially, you'd be going, wow. Whoever, the, If you'd never heard about Jesus before, even from just reading the first 17 verses, you would know that, wow, I don't know what Jesus is. I don't know what he taught, but man, history has led up to this point. At least that's what Matthew's trying to say. Wow, everything is fulfilled in this person. At least that's what Matthew's trying to say. Everything from Genesis through Malachi. Of course, if you were in the old Jewish Bible, it was 2 Chronicles. That was the end. Everything is pointing to this person whom Jesus, who Matthew was about to explain. This matters if you were a Jew because you had to know where you came from in order to know who you were and to know who you could become. Jesus is a historic king. Number two, Jesus is a royal king. Now, once again, royalty in the United States, we're a little bit iffy about this. 
uh, maybe even a little bit no thank you about this. But what does it mean to be royal? Well, once again, from the very beginning, <coughs> excuse me, Matthew is hyperlinking King Jesus all the way back to King David. The Jews at Jesus' time, as many of us know about, were seeking someone who could redeem Israel, who could restore Israel to its rightful place into the world, and to make Jerusalem the seat of power in the world. They needed a true king as well as someone who could rally the nation. They were never going to follow someone who didn't have the royal lineage. As Matthew has written to Jews, this is in an integral part. Not only did Jesus have the history, but Jesus is indeed in line with the ultimate king of kings, David. At least king of kings until Jesus. This doesn't matter so much anymore, but we have to realize that this is important in the fact that there is, if there is any objection to Jesus possibly taking over the throneship of King David, 2 Samuel 7, uh, the prophecy fulfilled. It's not there because Jesus has the line of royalty all the way from King David, who had the line of royalty all the way from the beginning of history, which actually segues us into number three. Jesus is a redemptive king. Notice the other name in the first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Obviously, who is Abraham? Abraham, David, if David was the ultimate king, Abraham was the ultimate father, meaning the beginning, the beginning of the Jewish nation, the beginning of the Hebrews, the one through whom God had begun to work his redemptive plan. You have to go all the way back to Genesis 12. And actually, I'll go there real quick just to explain this. Genesis 12, in the first three verses, as a matter of fact, God speaks to Abram, at this point, still, almost there, and says, And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, verse 3 of Genesis 12, In you all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. Just side note, what if God was looking at you and said, through you all the nations will be blessed, and you're going, what does that mean? To a Jew, it would mean that through Abraham, God began to work out his plan. Through Abraham, we've talked about this last year a little bit, of the people uh, who were supposed to sit at the right hand of God and be able to make that bridge between God and mankind. Abraham wasn't it, Noah wasn't it, Moses wasn't it, David wasn't it. Jesus was. But that began the line of people of God using um, important people, using these people in order to fulfill his plan. By putting Abraham and linking all the way intentionally back to Abraham, to beginning his genealogy with Abraham, Matthew is linking Genesis 12, the very promise of worldly salvation, worldly blessing, the very promise that through Abraham and now therefore, through this person, Matthew is making the claim, even just by saying it, we don't pick that up as much, even just by saying the son of Abraham, he's saying what Paul will expound upon later on in Galatians 4, that through Abraham's seed you will be blessed, not seeds, but Abraham's seed, if you are by faith and you are part of Abraham's family, Galatians 4 language, 
Matthew, from the very first verse, very first sentence, is making the claim that this person, Jesus, this person, son of David, son of Abraham, this is the fulfillment of what that means. That through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Meaning, through Abraham, through Jesus, all nations will be blessed. Right away, Matthew is bringing the redemptive promises of who God was and how God treated his people and placing them on and at the feet of who Jesus is. All that's in the first verse, as a matter of fact. All that. Not bad for like ten words. So if you were a Jew and you read the first verse, you'd already know, hmm, this is interesting, to say the least. Jesus is a redemptive king fulfilling who Abraham was, making full the promises of the Old Testament, Abraham. You would notice something else as you read on, though, something that might even be more striking than Jesus being the fulfillment of Abraham, the fulfillment of David. This has been talked about at length, and actually I even made note of this when I taught on um, the genealogy to begin the biographies class. As you read, you would encounter four people who shouldn't be there. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, and Ruth. If you were a Jew, or indeed anyone reading uh, genealogy of the ancient Far East or Near East or any of this time, and you came across these four people, you would do a second and third take. These people shouldn't be there in this genealogy. But yet Matthew, as we already established, Matthew is choosing people and placing these genealogies and arranging this on purpose. And so the question we have to ask is, what do these people, what do these women tell us about who Jesus is as a redemptive king, as a historic king, as a king who is coming on the throne and seat of royalty to be Messiah. Well, it tells us a few things right away. It tells us, um, well, actually, I forgot my order for a minute. Who are these people? And how do they affect who Jesus is? Who are these people? Well, these people, these women, are societal outcasts. As I don't like to mention, but as we have to, women were Women were second-rate citizens for most of history. They were necessary, and they were the desire of men, obviously, but they had no rights, they had no privileges in society for the most part, especially in, indeed, Jewish uh, history falls into that. And so to say anything, for them to be in a genealogy was unheard of. Uh, property, rights, uh, family history, family honor, all passed through men. To include a woman in a genealogy is like, dude, what are you doing? That doesn't matter. The fact that Jesus puts them in here means that Jesus is a king, which includes societal outcasts. Who are these people? They are also ethnic outcasts. Three or four of these were not, were not Hebrew. Ruth, Tamar, and Rahab were not Hebrew, were not Jewish, and yet they are included. Ethnic Tensions are still a problem. But yet in this time they were exacerbated in the fact that obviously, especially women of your own culture could not do anything. Well, how much less 
women of a different ethnicity, a different history, a different country. Who are these women? They are cultural outcasts. Now, I just talked about how the culture says it, but by even mentioning these people, by even including them, by even the history of mentioning uh, their role in Jewish history was almost something that Jewish men would be embarrassed about. Even culturally looking back, these people usually would not be worthy of inclusion because, well, why? There's no point. There's you're just you're. If nothing else, you're bringing down, says a Jewish mindset. You're bringing down the the authority of this genealogy when, in fact, Matthew's doing is the opposite. And finally, what kind of people were these four? They were ethical outcasts. What I mean by that is all four of them were involved in questionable, particularly sexual ethics. Maybe not so much Ruth, but there's still some questions. Tamar was raped. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba was taken by David in the act of lust and adultery. And Ruth was a Moabite woman, which Boaz took pity on. Ethically, these people were not, these four were not the ones to say, yes, the king has arrived. And yet here they are. What does this tell us about Jesus? Well, it tells us that he's an inclusive king. It tells us that he's not just a king for a certain people or a certain time who are a certain way, who act a certain way, or must uphold to a certain standard. Jesus is the king, particularly for those whose society has outcast. He's particularly a king for those ethnicities and those um, minorities which say, you don't matter and you don't count and, and you can't be here. He's particularly a king for those whose own culture rejects their life and whose own culture rejects their way of living, and particularly a king for those whose ethics sometimes are not the best. If you're counting, that includes about everyone by now. Jesus is a king of inclusion for all. And finally, Jesus is a hope-filled king. Messiah is a word that means anointed. Whenever you wanted to anoint someone for a particular task or a particular ministry, you would take some oil, rub it on their forehead, or sometimes pour it, and you would pronounce what their job was. You pronounce what they were anointed to do. Well, the question obviously is now, anointed for what? And we know the answer. Anointed to be God's hope of ultimate and absolute salvation and redemption. I love the word redemption to redeem because it means to buy back which is lost, but also it means more. Redeem means to put back right what was lost or wronged. To put back, to redeem, to recreate to what it was meant to be. Except God's promise doesn't just say, I'm going to put you back to what you were. God's promise is that I will make you, redeem you to what you were always meant to be. The kind of humans you were always meant to be. The kind of relationship with me, your God, and with each other you were always meant to have. The kind of life you were always meant to live. And more so. The fact that Matthew says the son of David <clears throat> the son of Abraham and verse 16 Jesus was born who is called 
Christ. That was obviously not a last name. Christ is the word for Messiah. He ends all of this by saying the history, the royal lineage, who Jesus includes, all of it points to the fact that he is Messiah, that he is one who will redeem not only the wrongs of everyone on this list, but of everyone who comes after him. Why this matters is something a point I made a year ago too. Why this matters is that the character of the king determines the character of the kingdom and its citizens. This is true even nowadays. If you study organizational health or organizational dynamics or leadership, every expert worth their salt will say that a group of people who follow a leader will follow who they are, not just what they say to be. If you have a leader of an organization that is lying and cheating and corrupt, guess what the company will be? If you have a church whose elders are not the best, neither would that church be. If you have a family who the parents model a certain behavior, so the family will go. If you have a king who is a certain way, so the kingdom will be and its citizens. The kind of king Jesus is matters because the kind of king Jesus is is the kind of kingdom he will reign over. And the kind of kingdom he will reign over is the kind of kingdom citizens that he rules over. Matthew is saying, not just this is the type of king that Jesus is, but as he makes these points, and as we look at these points, Matthew is also saying, right from the first 17 verses, this is the kind of king Jesus is, and this is the kind of kingdom he has, so therefore these are the type of people that the subjects of this king must be. Historic, meaning that we didn't just pop out of thin air, we must know our history, we must know the stories of those who came before us, both in ultimate history as well as our own families and our and our friends. We must know the stakes and the successes and learn from them royal. We may not necessarily be kings in the sense, but we are descended from the royal blood of Jesus, meaning that we are citizens of the kingdom. We have the right to be called sons and brothers of God. We have the right to walk into, says Hebrews 4, the throne room of God and, the ult- and before the king of everything, the ultimate creator, be able to pray and be able to speak our, deme- uh, our hopes and fears and desires and, and, and everything. We are hopeful. We are inclusive. We are redemptive of those who are around us. This is not only the king that we follow, but this is also the character of who we must be. And of course you hear these sermons and you go, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. As we know, living this out is a lot harder. It's easy to sit here and say, yes, we should do this. It's easy for me to say, yes, we should do this. It's obvious in Scripture. It's easy for you to sit there and nod. Except tomorrow morning, when real life happens, we know how hard this is. To actually listen to the lessons of those before us. who actually believe who we are. To actually include those in our society who Jesus would to act in such a way that offers hope and redemption not only to those around us, but even to ourselves and the fact that when we, when we mess up and when we are faced with our own sin, the fact of, no, this is not who I am, but I am being made new. And the fact of being hopeful 
in the midst of pain and sorrow and suffering. That's hard. Ask some of the families who have lost people lately. That's hard. Matthew says a lot just with a collection of names in 17 verses. To a Jew, it would be a fitting introduction, and yet it is still a fitting introduction for us because it shows us the kind of king that Jesus is, as well as gives us our own challenge of how to conduct our lives as citizens of that kingdom. The unwritten question that Matthew and Mark and all the gospel writers really ask at the end of their introductions are, do you believe it? And they will spend the next however many chapters they write explaining why not just should but why it is truth beyond measure. Two questions for you as we start this year. One, what kind of kings, what kind of figures, what kind of authorities do we tend to serve? And why don't we serve King Jesus? But then also, secondly, does this describe us as a church? Does this describe us as a people? Does this describe us as followers of a king with these qualities? And I don't ask that for you to go, no, and beat yourself up. That's never... The Bible is not afraid of guilt, but the Bible never condones shame. Realizing who you are and where you are doesn't mean that you put your head down and you say, yes, that's all I am. It means that it's pointing to the very hope that you can be only in Christ Jesus. Realizing that, yes, we may not have these qualities does not cause for grief or agony or shame, but cause for hope and prayer in the Lord Messiah, who through whom which we can indeed be transformed into his likeness and into these very things. That's my hope this year as we go through Matthew and look at who is King Jesus, that we may be convicted, that we may be transformed, that we may see what kind of king we serve in this wonderful Savior, but then also who we must be as his people.